Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We continue with our exposition of this fascinating epistle, the epistle of Paul to Corinth, the Corinthian believers, the first one. We are chapter 10. This is the third message on this particular section. And um, it's a very interesting one. Actually, this is one we should spend much more time on. Because we're looking here at Paul's divine instructions as to how the carnal Christians were to control their lack of moral self-discipline as well as their display of arrogance because of their self-proclaimed knowledge of spiritual truths. He did that from chapter 8. That's when he started to deal with this. And the focal issue that he uses as a means of dealing with their carnality in this area is um, the matter or the issue of eating meat that was offered to idols. In other words, meat that was offered in a pagan worship service. Some of the Corinthians who wrote to Paul about this issue felt that they were strong Christians and they could do anything they want because of their knowledge of the word. And Paul even commended them for their giftedness. And they were gifted people, but they were carnal. And he is addressing this in different ways. And he's dealing it from a point of freedom. He's saying, yes, you do have freedom in Christ to do many things as a Christian. However, there is another principle that comes into play at times, and that is the principle of love, a concern for how your actions impact a younger or a weaker brother. And he says, yes, you might have the freedom to do something. You might have the right to do it, but you also have the freedom or the right not to do it if it impacts another person negatively. And that's what he's dealing with here. And he uses all sorts of examples. He used himself in chapter 9 as an example. He says, as an apostle, I have a right to expect support from you. And he gives all kinds of biblical illustrations of that truth to validate that principle that a preacher of the gospel, a workman, is, is worthy of his hire. He says, I have a right to expect support from you. However, because of the attitude some of you have, some of you don't believe that I am an apostle. Some of you believe I'm just there to get the money. Therefore, I am not going to take your money. He says, I have the right to get it, but I refuse that because if I do it, I know that I will hurt some other people. Then he goes on in the first part of chapter 10, and he uses the examples of the history of the people of Israel in the wilderness. He says, now look at these people. They were just like you. They have all the blessings. They were delivered from Egypt, the blessing of what we call redemption. Then you had the guidance of God throughout the wilderness, the pillar of cloud, the fire. You had the, God's guidance all through. Those were all blessings. Not only that, you had Jesus Christ following you all through the wilderness. He said that rock from which you got that water, that was Jesus. He followed you. He walked with you through the wilderness. So we had the presence of Christ 
These were all blessings. And he's telling the Christians now at Corinth, you too have all of these blessings. But look what happened to them in spite of the blessings. They fell. And he says, because of their disobedience, because of their arrogance, they're testing God. The King James Version says, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. In spite of all the blessings, in spite of all the privileges, only two people out of almost two million entered the promised land. Now, he's using that history lesson to teach the Corinthians and us today what to avoid in order to be holy and in order to be the kind of believers in practice that God wants us to be. So now he comes to verse 11. That's where we stopped last time. And he warns them and he warns us about being overconfident in our strength, realizing that an entire nation failed to reach the finish line. Remember he talked about the race in chapter 9? And some were disqualified. Only two were not. The rest of them were disqualified and they stopped. Even Moses, right at the finish line, he stopped. He didn't cross over. But now Paul says, in the midst of judgment, there is always grace. This is a wonderful principle that flows through scripture. Whenever God talks about judgment, you're going to find grace somewhere in it. Either before, after, or in it. So whenever you hear or see or think about judgment, look somewhere, you'll see the grace of God. And Paul is saying right here, that in the midst of judgment, there is grace. Because even though we are warned by Israel's failures, we should also be encouraged by God's faithfulness. Beautiful message here. The faithfulness of God. And this is evident also in Israel's history. And so Paul is saying, while the Israelites failed, God was faithful. And he saw to it that his purpose and promises were fulfilled in spite of Israel's failures. His purpose is fulfilled in spite of Israel's failures. What he's telling the people of Israel, we do not need to fail. They failed, and he says, now, I am giving you this history lesson, so you should not fail like they did. Don't repeat history, the history of the Israelites in your life. What we need to do as God's people is to grasp the way of escape that God always provides for us in the midst of temptations. No matter what it is, Paul is saying, God has provided a way out for us, a way for us to be victorious. And God in his faithfulness gives us a way of handling any temptation that comes our way. Notice what he says. Gives this divine instruction. These things happen to them as examples for us that were written down to warn us who live at the end of this age. Now, notice what he's saying. He's saying that God has chosen these specific historical events in the life of his people to teach us something today, showing the divine inspiration of the word of God. 
And the fact that every word in the word of God is profitable to us for our edification. Now, the word examples here means templates. It means imprint. It is something that leaves a mark for all to see and be warned by and are taught from. Like this sign you see here that this lady is carrying. I stole from Walmart. Now, why do you think she's given that kind of a punishment? She's a warning. She's a sign for those who are looking at it not to do what she did, or they could be made to be ashamed in the same way. Paul says here that the things that happened to Israel in the wilderness with such imprints, types for us today, look at it. Look at them. A warning to you. They're not just old stories for children. The warning that the same thing could happen to you if you do not lay a hold of the faithfulness of God. In other words, they are a history lesson and holiness for the people of God today. In fact, Paul says that they were specifically designed and planned by God to impact us right now, even as you and I present in this auditorium. What they went through in the wilderness, God designed it to talk, to speak to you today. So pause for a moment. What is he saying to you? This is a history lesson by God himself. He is the teacher. He chose the curriculum. He chose the illustrations. He says, look at them. The warning. He then applies it. Paul is a good teacher. He applies these lessons specifically to proud, self-assured, arrogant Corinthian Christians. And they were. And that's what Paul is dealing with. When you come to chapter 13 in love, that's the reason why he's talking about love. They're proud. They're arrogant. So Paul gives a humble precaution. He says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. That's the warning from the life of Israel in the wilderness. See, some people think, hey, I'm a good Christian. I come to church all the time. I give my tithes. I even serve. And therefore, you know, I'm strong. I could do a lot of things. I could take a drink. I could do this. I could do that. I'm strong enough. I won't let it I won't become addicted. I won't let it control me. I'm a strong Christian man. I've been coming to church all these years. I attended the Bible class. I, I, I know all these things. I'm strong. I won't allow it. You see, that's what's happening. These Corinthians, they're saying, hey, I've got an invite to go to this pagan temple with my friend. And at this temple, they're going to have these meats and all that kind of thing. I'm okay. I could, they didn't hurt me. That's what some Christians say. That's why they would do everything the unsaved person do. Drink, gamble, do everything else. I could name off a lot of other things, but I don't want to put taboos on all of this because I don't believe in all of that. But sometimes we get involved in activities that we know are not Christ-like. But the idea that I'm strong enough to overcome, being overcome by the, the things I'm doing. 
Paul says, no, no. Those people who were delivered from Egypt, they thought they were going to the promised land. Why? They had the powerful God behind them. God delivered them with a powerful right hand. God guides them. God provides them. Give them. Boy, we've got it made. Therefore, we could do anything we want on the way there. Paul says, no, no, no. Because they refused to follow the rules of the race, they were disqualified. Paul says the same thing could happen here. So he says, you professedly strong Christians who think that you can go where you want, eat what you want, and do what you want because of your position in Christ and knowledge of the word of God, be warned. Yeah, you might have the right and privilege to do so, but you also have the responsibility of not being a stumbling block to your weaker brother or Christ, sister in Christ. Yes, you have the right, but you have a responsibility as well. Beware, Paul is saying, that your strength did not become a stumbling block in your life. I call this a humble precaution or a spiritual reality check. We all need to take that. Heed the warning God has given you through the past happenings of his people Israel. Heed it. He goes on to say, what you faced there in Corinth it's not unique to you. You'll find as you go to this book that the Corinthians sort of thought they were unique people. In fact, at the end of chapter 14, Paul even asked the question, you think that the word of God only came to you? Nobody else has it, only you. Because they want to do things their way. Verse 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. This is the New Living Translation. King James says, no temptation has taken you, but as is common to man, but God is faithful. In other words, what Paul is saying, the temptations you face at Corinth are not unique. Your forefathers, now see, this is the lesson comes soon. Your forefathers in the wilderness experienced them before you did. And they now stand both as examples and a warning to you. Didn't just happen to you, it happened to those who came before you. Martin Luther once said, three things, are go, go, three things go into the making of a man, a man of God. The word of God, prayer, and temptation. I agree with that. Because if we don't know how to overcome temptation, we cannot be victorious, we cannot be overcomers in the Christian life. But you can be one, sure of one thing Paul goes on to say. God is faithful. That's a beautiful statement in the midst of all of it. God is faithful. You see? He will not allow the temptations to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out. Now notice this. So that you can endure. Now, you see, sometimes when he says show you a way out, it means as though we're not going to get into it in the first place. But notice carefully what the text says. He says, he will show you a way out so you can endure. In other words, the way out is to endure it. But you got to endure it with the power and instructions he gives. James teaches us this. In order for us to be perfected, 
We must persevere to the trials and temptations. Not get out of it. You see, that's one of the mistakes we make as Christians. When we get into problems with trials, what's the first thing we pray for? Lord, get me out of it. Isn't that right? Lord, get me out of here. But actually, Paul is saying, no, that should not be your prayer. Because God is at work in you. And this is a part of his work in you. That's a little pressure of the potter shaping the, the, the clay. No, Paul is saying, actually, that pressure should be, Lord, help me to persevere through this for your glory. That's what he's saying here. You see? That's what he's saying here. In other words, we need to hold up under the pressures, not get out of the pressures, is what Paul is. Now, that's an opposite message from our culture today. So Paul is saying, if you follow God's rules of the game, you will finish the race. You'll be eligible for the prize. But if you don't follow the rules, you won't finish. You won't be eligible to win the prize. You'll be disqualified. God gives you the rules. God always gives you the path to victory. Always. That's the lesson of history, Paul is saying. Do things God's way. And we win. Follow his rules of the game. And we win. Forget Frank Sinatra. Most of them don't know what he's saying. saying. My way. Right? My way. So Paul is telling the... That shows how old I am, by the way, right? He's telling... The, Paul is telling the Corinthians and us, don't make up your own rules to run the race of God. God has set the rules, not you. Don't make up your own rules for the game. Your confidence to finish the course and win a prize could be well advised and leads only to your being disqualified. And you'll not only be put on the shelf as the ministry is concerned as a Christian, but also because of your loss of holiness as a way of life, you will lose your fellowship with God. That's a terrible price to pray, pay for doing things your way, and not God's way. Now these are the lessons Paul says the history of God's people in the past has left us. The question now is, for us, each of us, will you learn the lesson? Or will you let history, history of Israel, repeat itself in your life? Which means that your carcass will be left in the spiritual wilderness of this life as well. You'll miss out hearing, oh yes, this has nothing to do with the loss of salvation. It has to do with the loss here of fellowship and then the loss of hearing God say when the race is finished, well done. You've run the course, you've kept the faith. Now there's a prize. You lose that. So what will you do with these lessons? Will you just ignore them and you leave here? Or will you allow the Spirit of God to apply it to your life so you wouldn't have that sign on your back that I did, what the Israelites did in the wilderness. Now Paul makes another application in verse 14. Now I, that's, by the way, I finished the message. I just finished the message from last week. So now I'm starting on my message for the day. So this is where the time starts. He makes an application, verse 14. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. He's applying now the lesson that he's taught. And here is it. Flee 
Now notice, flee. Doesn't mean study, sit down and study it. Doesn't mean sit down and you know just play around. It, flee. I mean run. Now from this verse to the end of the chapter, Paul spells out the bottom line as to why Christians should and must not participate in partaking of food in pagan services. He applies what he has been teaching in principle by addressing three situations which a Corinthians would face. First, it's a question of whether a Christian should eat meat offered to idols as a me- at a meal that is a part of a heathen worship. That's in verses 14 to 22. Then, secondly, the question of whether Corinthians should eat meat offered to idols purchased in the marketplace, where they could get it at a good price. The origins, of course, here uh, are not known. When he buys, he doesn't know exactly. Then, thirdly, the question of whether a Corinthian Christian should accept a dinner invitation from an unbeliever where this kind of meat might be offered. Now let's look at verse 15 where he starts to deal with these things. Paul deals with all aspects of them, but he explains what he means in verse 15. He says, you are reasonable people. He's talking to Corinthians now. He's trying to build up to what they say they are. They're smart. They're strong. They know everything about the scriptures. All right, you're reasonable people. You're able to think this thing through. You're rational. Decide for yourself if what I'm saying is true. I'm going to leave it to you. I'm going to lay out the facts, all the evidence, and you bring the verdict in. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, he's talking about what we call the communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And it's amazing that Paul brings this in here. And, and, And this is one aspect of this passage I wish we could spend several weeks on, because this is so important, to see how our actions relate to our fellowship with Christ around the Lord's table. That's why when you get into chapter 11, you can see some of them dying because they ain't behaving right around the Lord's table. We look at that, we don't think seriously about that, but that's still going on, you know. It's still on, going on. The principle is still there. And Paul starts here in chapter 10 to deal with it. He says, when we bless the cup, when we give thanks for the cup at the Lord's table, Are we not sharing in the blood of Christ? Are we not participating in the effects of the death of Jesus Christ? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. He's saying that's what you're doing. When you drink the cup, you are participating. You are showing that you are participating in the effects of the blood, the death of Christ for you. You're applying it to your life. And when we break the bread... Aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? It's a mutual participation by every worshiper. They are participating of the same sacrifice, Jesus Christ. You Corinthians are biblically literate, you say. At least you claim to be. You certainly know about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. You know that to partake of the cup at the Lord's table is to symbolically partake of what the cup represents. His blood. You know that. He's laying down a principle here. Because they're asking, should I go into the temple with this unsaved friend? This friend, you know, I like him. I don't hurt his feelings. 
He tell me to come worship at his church. Although I know they don't believe that God is a triune God, although they don't believe that Jesus is God, although they don't believe that it's the blood of Christ alone, that I, they say, you know, you, my friend, you come into worship with me. Well, I want you to understand that when you do, you are participating in that worship. Saying that you believe what they believe. This is important to us. You all face that every time you go to a funeral at a different church. Some would get up and say, when you partake of this, you drink this blood, this wine, this juice, whatever it is, because of the words we have said, that's the actual blood of Christ. When you partake of that blood, that that bread, that's the actual flesh of Jesus Christ. You're given the opportunity to come to partake with everybody else. When you do it, you're making a confession that I am literally partaking of the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Now, whether you like it or not, that's what Paul is, that's what he teaches. When you go through the motions in a, such an activity, in such an environment, you are worshiping whatever it is that those people say they believe. Not only that, verse 17, though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. In other words, he's trying to say there's a communion here. There's a oneness here. When we come as people who believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior, we place faith alone in Christ alone, and we come around the Lord's table to participate of the resemblance, we are one. That's what he's emphasizing. We are one. What is true of one is true of all. What is true of all is true of one in the body of Christ. Think about the people of Israel. He, he hasn't forgotten Israel. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? Now he's talking about the worship service of the Israelites when they offered sacrifices. What were they doing? He's trying, what he's going to do now, in case they cut me off, because time is going. What he's going to try to, what he's going to do is to show that the people of Israel had their communion service when they did the sacrifices. Because they were communion with God and they were communion with one another. The same way we have it here, they had it then, but in a different form. So what he is saying, even as the believer's participation in the one loaf in the Lord's Supper symbolizes our oneness in Christ, so did the offering and eating of the sacrifices by Israel show their oneness and their unity as a people and their relationship to God. Their worship was similar then to our breaking of bread. That was their communion service. That's what he's saying. He's trying to show the idea of oneness and unity of worship when they do certain things. So our actions, our behavior is not just casual things. God looks at what we're doing and why we're doing it. 
In other words, eating of what has been eating of what has been sacrificed on the altar for the Israelites not only unites the one eating with the sacrifice, it unites them with those who share the meal with them. Remember, think now carefully here. Now, I'm addressing you all as literal as people who are literate in the Bible. You remember when the animals were sacrificed, the priests on behalf of the people would put their hands on the on the animal to be sacrificed. Right or wrong? Point sacrificed. Implying or symbolizing what? Identification. And passing the sins of that person under the sins of the animal. One animal, the scapegoat, was cast into was let go into the wilderness, showing that God has forgiven sin. The other one was eaten after it was burnt. The people gathered together and actually ate the meal with the rest of the meat that was left. They showed fellowship with one another and their fellowship with God. That was their communion service. Eating of what had been sacrificed on the altar not only unites the one eating with the sacrifice, it unites them with those who share in the meal with them. The Old Testament saints had their own form of communion at which they ate a portion of what has been sacrificed. The sacrificial, the sacrificial meal joined the participant of the sacrifice and those who shared with them in eating of it. That's Paul's point. There was a unity that came about because of what you did. Here's my point, Paul is saying. The pagan ritual of eating a meal, of which a portion is that which was sacrificed in heathen worship, was a communion service as well. The pagans had their own communion service. And what is that communion service? Taking that meat and offering it to God. And the same way we say we have fellowship as the people of God with one another and God when we participate, the pagan people were doing the same thing. Notice what Paul says now. What am I saying? New Living says, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. He said that before. He's saying it again. There's no such thing as gods. The idols are only that. That's all. He says, but I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not God. The sacrifices, although we know there's no God, so they're not offering it to God, but they are offering it to someone or someones or some things. They're offering it to demons. And that's the word of God. So you just can't go and say, well, Paul says, hey, that, that service they're doing don't mean anything. No, 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 Paul isn't saying that. Paul said, there are no, there's only one God. That's Yahweh. That's Jehovah. But listen, when they worship, Although they're not worshipping God, they are worshipping demons. Now get it in context. They are becoming in communion with demons when they participate of this meal. And this is the one the Christian won't go to because he says he's strong. So Paul is saying, yeah. There are no gods, but there are demons. Not only that. 
Fellowship with God, he says, eliminates fellowship with demons. Now, you all got to, we got to take this one in. I know I had to go over and over with this one. Fellowship with God eliminates fellowship with demons. You cannot, they cannot coexist. You cannot fellowship with demons and fellowship with God at the same time. Even as you cannot have two masters, you cannot have two objects of worship at the same time. When the pagans worship idols by sacrificing to them, they are worshiping demons. Now, some people say, demons, man, that's old. You know, we, we, we sophisticated people, man. Demons, that's, you know, I'll go way back to the 5th, 6th, 7th, 7th century, man. You know, they, they don't exist today. Oh, yeah? And many people are still worshiping them. Some know it. Some don't. Paul is trying to enlighten the Corinthians of what they say. They're so smart and they're so strong they could do this. I want you to understand what you're doing. The Corinthians had failed to see and to understand this truth. Yes, there are no other gods. Yes, idols are nothing. They represent gods which don't exist. That's true. However, this does not mean that false worship is harmless and without spiritual consequence. That's what he's saying. Paul says that the worship of idols is the worship of demons. I say we've got to apply this today. This is not a new truth, by the way. Israel did it in the wilderness. That's Paul's point. They didn't know Israel did it. Israel didn't know they did it. You see, when they built that, made that golden calf of all you ladies, earrings and all that stuff, when they made that, they said, let's worship the calf. Did they say, let's worship the calf itself? No. They say, this calf represents Jehovah. This calf represents Yahweh. In their minds, they were worshiping Yahweh. But in God's mind, they were worshiping demons. That's the lesson. Just because you changed the name doesn't mean that you changed the object of worship. You have an idol here. You say that idol represents that thing over there, that person's over there. I am not worshiping this, I'm worshiping that. Paul says that's nonsense. There's one God. If you're going to worship God, worship God. You don't have to worship him through an idol. Paul says that when the Corinthians eat meats offered to idols in a pagan temple, they provoked the Lord to jealousy the same way their forefathers did. That's why he said to them, flee idolatry, run away from it. Don't fool around with it. Don't compromise it. To sit at the table with pagans in their place of worship is to participate in the worship of demons. And Paul says, that's idolatry. As one commentator says, and I quote, No wonder God gave the Israelites such strict food laws. This kept the Jews from eating with the Gentiles and thus from participating in their idolatry. Paul goes on 
he says in verse 23, he's going to apply it a little bit more, but I think I better stop here today again. Otherwise, I'll be in the wilderness so soon, running around. But friends, listen, please. We're talking about the Word of God. If you are a believer and you believe that God is speaking to us in His Word, please listen to what He is saying. These are spiritual realities that affect not only your life and your fellowship with God now, but also when you see Him face to face. Please heed the warning that God has given us in the Word. Let us flee idolatry and be sure that we are worshipping the one true and living God directly. And that's based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. May it find good soil in our lives today. And all of God's people said, Amen.